The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth featuring musical guest Sting. The end of an era and possibly an industry. Pulitzer Prize winning political cartoonist Adam Ziegler joins us for the demise of Mad Magazine, the firing of one of his colleagues over a Trump cartoon, and the lifestyle of a cartoonist. Plus, another guest for our live on location show, uh, who's actually not really going to be a guest. Best guest we never had. Uh, yeah, the mystery guest. It was such a mystery that he's not even going to be there. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So, Alan, big fan of the Mad Magazine, so you must be crushed. I am. Mad Magazine helped me learn how to read when I was a kid. They, I, I started with uh, regular comic books, Superman and Batman, and other superhero books. But then I graduated to Mad because that was uh, the the magazine that made my mother really, really nervous. And, of course, you try to annoy your parents as much as possible when you're a kid. <laughs> and uh, not only did I buy the monthly issues, but they had the big um, special issues that were, were thicker. And then they had the books that went all the way back to the 1950s. And I had a whole bunch of Mad Magazine books. So the fact that they're now going to be um, ceasing publication of new material and, of course, helping you along the way with your reading skills by folding the back page over twice. Al Jaffe. That's the artist that did that. Yeah. It's funny. I can still remember, you know, Sergio Argonas, Dave Berg. I can still remember all the artists and all the writers for that. At geeksandbeats.com, Amber Healy reports that the editorial cartoon has power well outside of its few words and images, but that it's losing its place in the world at a time when it's needed most. I would say, Sue, I, I learned more from Gary Trudeau and Doonesbury than I ever did from the evening news. Which I stumbled across this. Doonesbury was pulled from a bunch of uh, newspapers for being too political like 12 years ago. Oh, no, Doonesbury's been pulled a couple of times, um, usually of, over some sort of... Um, you know, extreme right or extreme left uh, complaint. So in recent months, uh, artists and readers of political satire, editorial cartoons and current affairs have been hit with these three very real blows, as Amber writes. Of course, Mad Magazine, uh, The New York Times is uh, going to stop, has stopped publishing editorial cartoons in the international edition. They put very few of them in the American edition anyway. I can't remember the last time I saw uh, a political cartoon in The New York Times, and I get it every Sunday. Right. And then you've got Michael Deadder, who was a very respected, very influential cartoonist in Canadian newspapers. The day after his cartoon was published that showed Donald Trump asking a drown, uh, those drowned asylum seekers if he could continue to play through around their dead bodies, he got the pink slip as well. Yeah, but that wasn't necessarily because of the cartoon. It was just bad timing. Well, what do you mean by that? He was downsized as a matter of course, not because anybody complained about that particular cartoon. 
I want to get some further insight into that because I have a feeling that that was the explanation that was given at the corporate level, but to Adder himself had pointed out that he was walking on thin ice for quite some time already. To help us get a better sense as to where we are in the world of editorial cartooning, we turn to Adam Ziegler. Uh, he is, you, you won a Pulitzer, did you not? I, I did, yes. Uh, it was uh, 2015 for my work. Was that not like the crowning achievement of your career at that point? It, it is. And I did not expect that. I didn't see it coming, especially so early in my career. So it was, it was incredible. The experience was, was wild. Um, and you don't do what I do to win a Pulitzer. If you're a journalist, you don't, your goal isn't to win awards, but it's the ultimate, um, you know, uh, just, it's the ultimate, just, uh, I don't want to say a uh, stamp of approval, but it's just a, a source of encouragement that says you're doing what you're doing for the right reasons, and every late night you've had that you've put into everything you do is, you know, hasn't gone to waste, and it's been appreciated. So it's it was really incredible to win that. I felt like it was for my city as well because I have such a strong bond to Buffalo, New York here. And you replaced Tom Tolles too, who was another Pulitzer winner. Yeah, Buffalo is very is very unique. There's uh, I'm the third editorial cartoonist has won that has won a Pulitzer Prize uh, in Buffalo. To what do you attribute that? Yeah, I think. The sense of the city has something to do with it. I, I grew up in Buffalo, and I think all you know, all three cartoonists were sort of um, native to Buffalo that had won the Pulitzer here. And um, I think two different two different reasons. And this is just you know what I've come up with. I don't know if this is true, but this Buffalo is a city that has an insanely strong sense of community. And anyone that's been here, um, or you know, that has seen the city on the decline um, and now on the rise. Has know this, the community has been through so much that you know that kind of economic distress really brings people together, and and the climate's a big part of that too. So we've always had a strong sense of community, and as a newspaper town, um, we have sort of people just want to know about what's happening locally. I mean, there's very in America here, there are very few cities that have this quality, like almost like Portland, or I should say uh, Asheville, Portland, Oregon, where we support everything local. You know, we kind of it's a controversy when a chain restaurant opens up in one of our strips. So everyone is very passionate about Buffalo. So, so that makes cartooning great because I get an, a, a, a wonderful response from my readers compared for the size of the city. Uh, to give you an example, I do a caption contest, which it's not political, but just it's an example on the feedback I get. The only the caption contest in the, in the spirit of like the New Yorker who does, you know, they do the caption contest in the back. And I got the idea from Steve Breen, who was a, my colleague in San Diego. He's the only other, one of the other regional cartoonists that has done this. And San Diego is a much larger market, maybe three or four times the size of Buffalo, uh, at least maybe three, I think. And he gets like two to 300 entries every caption contest, and they, he deems it a huge success. Uh, so does his editors. I, I started my caption contest in last July, and I got like 1,200 entries. Wow. And people just... They just go nuts for, you know, for, for their local you know, sports teams, their local um, cartoonists, apparently. So it, I get lots of interaction with the readers. And I think that makes my job, uh, makes me richer um, in what I do when I get that kind of feedback, because it's a conversation. But does it at the same time also ensure your employment or does it put it at greater risk? It's it's a double-edged sword. I mean, the region of Western New York is very rural. I mean, it's kind of a microcosm of the country in that it's it's as red 
uh, in parts of Western Europe, where I grew up even in Alden, outside of Buffalo, as it is almost anywhere in the country. Um, and you contrast that with the city, uh, which is very liberal, um, you know, progressive. There's a young sort of group of up and coming, very progressive minded uh, people who want to start leading the city. Um, so it, it is the, the feedback I get on my Trump cartoons is as bad, if not worse than, you know, any of my colleagues. And I've gotten I've had a situation where I've gotten, you know, pretty serious threats. Um, one person in particular over the last couple of years, there have been some issues. Um, and, and my editors, you know, that's not I don't want my editors to feel any of that. You know, I don't want that to, in turn, result in any kind of censorship that we are seeing around the country with other cartoonists. Um, so right now, knock on wood, if I can find any over here in my office, um, I, I'm, I'm in really good hands with my editors and they give me full freedom um, to do what I want to do. Okay, I have a couple of questions. How many panels do you have to draw a week? Um, with my agreement, I generally do five a week. Uh, and that includes, I, I, I produce them in full color so that they can print in color. Um, my syndicate requires that. I, for, for my newspaper, they appear online in color, but many papers that will reprint my work, some of them will print them in color. Is that relevant? The, the color component? Yeah. To me, it is not. I never did color until three or four years ago, but you know, I'm an old school guy, you know, speaking of Mad Magazine. I grew up, I'm, I'm a black and white guy. I, I love David Levine. Some of my favorite artists were just line work. And I was kicking and dragging, you know, I was reluctant to go into color um, until, so Margaret Sullivan, who hired me, she's, um, you know, with the Washington Post now, she's one of my mentors. She, she was the editor of the Buffalo News. She, a few years before I ended up winning the Pulitzer, um, she was, uh, she, she was on the Pulitzer board, not when I was, not when I won, but she had served beforehand. And she made the call with, um, Matt Worker when he won the Pulitzer. And it was the first, um, non-traditional, uh, digital winner, I believe, uh, digital newspaper. She said the judges were so impressed with his use of color. And she's like, it's, it's, it shouldn't be that way. But when you have three or four, um, excellent portfolios, when they're all arguably hitting as hard as they can. Um, when everything else is equal, bringing it in full color kind of just has that extra, uh, you know, allure or uh, impact if it can be done effectively. So, and, and I never looked at it that way. Um, but since the last four years when I've been adding color, it, there are times when I feel like it can enhance, enhance the cartoon. Not every time. Um, but it's, to me, it's, I want to be, you know, make it my own and make it good. So I do spend a fair amount of time. Some other cartoonists like Tolls, for instance, who had won you know, who was, who was uh, at the Buffalo News before me, he, his syndicate colors his cartoon for him. And he kind of, he, he tells me he's not always happy with how they do that. Um, but, you know, uh, growing up with, with, you know, some of these older artists and then seeing mad, you know, think about some of the vibrant illustrations and political sets, how you see that are full color. Well, when Alan suggested that he learned how to read using Mad Magazine, I thought he was being sarcastic because I don't <laughs> remember reading a damn word in it. Oh, I learned. I I learned how to read um, and write. I learned how to write from reading Mad Magazine. Oh, okay. So the, the, writing in your world is very different from writing in Alan's world of music radio, and very different from my world of news writing. What is your world of writing like that you learned from Mad Magazine? Well, you know, I was learning how to write uh, over time without realizing that was happening. When I first was hired, uh, right out of college at the Buffalo News. I, I always thought of cartooning as an illustr as a drawing job, you know, and this is, I've talked to my colleagues about this and it's, 
um, a lot of our, my colleagues agree, it, you, you begin thinking it's a drawing job because that's the medium you're in. Um, and writing is a part of it. But when you find your feet, and you know, it takes cartoonists three to five years often um, with working every day to really find their voice, you realize it's definitely primarily a writing job. And your, the artwork, it's, you, 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 you spend years just figuring out your look, but once that's there, it becomes just reflexive and it just your form of expression, like your voice if you're on the radio. Um, so the writing becomes just the most important thing. And over time, you, you know, like consuming other sources of satire, you, you see different ways to go about ridicule and satire and, and approaching concepts. Because for me, it's a two-component writing job. There's the message in the writing and there's the creative concept. It's like there's two elements to it. You know, it's really essentially what you're saying in this piece of satire or uh, opinion and then it's that creative concept, which is almost the work of like an ad agency or a copywriter. Um, that that creative component is something that is just practiced over time, like like a creative muscle, like going to the gym. Let me let me paraphrase it. Picture's worth a thousand words. <laughs> yeah, a, a picture's worth a thousand words, and if you can, well, often you know having one caption in there can add multiple layers, like a poem. Um, mm. So just. The goal is few as few words as possible, and I have some of my favorite cartoons don't have any words, and they do en encapsulate an entire issue. For example, in news writing, we have a bunch of different tools in our toolbox that we bring to the office every day. We sit down, we open up the toolbox, and we start building uh, a story. And one of the little tools that we use is, for example, date references. You always want to bury a date reference because the last thing someone thinks about is the last few words they hear in their head. So the last few words in any given sentence are very important. So you bury the date reference. Uh, the man went to the store yesterday to buy something some milk. Well, the milk right. was the important part, not the yesterday. So let's bury right. that reference. What are some of those little things in your world that you, those tools that you've acquired over the course of your many years doing this every single day? Yeah, there are like a number of tools in your toolbox and ways to make something better. Like there's always, there's general rules. Like you always read, even if, even an image, everything's left to right. So your visual punchline, your, your written punchline should be toward the end of the lower right of the cartoon. If you give it People look to the upper left just instinctively um, to begin, even with an image. So that has to all flow the proper way. And if you're doing a headline, um, you know, if the concept is a strong headline that has a double entendre or a caption, where you place that at the bottom of the cartoon or the upper left, that dictates the order that you read it, and it will dictate whether the image or that phrase becomes the last thing somebody reads. Um, and, and it becomes the focus, either the emphasis or a, a second layer that really enhances it, but isn't the driving force. And we also, that's just a single panel, but with multiple panel cartoons, when it's, um, you know, stuff you'll see often in Mad, or Doonesbury, like you said, is more of a story, he's a storyteller. But with a multiple panel editorial cartoon, every panel and every detail in every panel should be there for a reason. So, uh, it, you know, I think after it's, after we've, you know, I create a piece, I deconstruct it, I go backwards. I, I, I kind of rip it apart and say, do I need this? And I kind of start, you know, I take it, tear it apart and rebuild it again. And it could end up the way it started, or it could be more concise. You know, I think when it comes to what I do, um, being really tight in your writing is, is hard, but it's most important. You know, it's more difficult to sort of have two words to convey everything than four. All right. You do five panels a week. What's your workflow like? 
it's um, is it's actually very organic. It's not it's not like a factory line. Um, and I'm I'm blessed to have a lot of flexibility with my job. So my deadlines, I dictate or I basically tell them which days I'm going to run my work. And like this week, for instance, I'm doing two cartoons on a Thursday, um, so, so it prints Friday and Sunday. So I tend to most of my work, my deadlines are sort of stacked toward the end of the week. So. Um, but I generally start my day um, at home. I work half the day from home. I, I read or answer email and research and get the message sort of going. I sort of have a running list of topics I want to comment on, um, and I, I always take notes. And then middle of the day, um, usually around lunchtime a little, or noon or a little before, I head into the office, and that's where that creative component comes in. I sort of I already know in the back of my head which topics I want comment on, and I've read about them, and I'm... Uh, you know, I have some things in my head. I may have already thought of an idea or two, but here is when I start brainstorming and I walk a lot. You know, I, I, I can't really stay still, but I, I go into the office also so I can, I can bounce ideas around with a couple of journalists that are there because what I'm doing is really mass communication. You know, if, if I just stayed and worked from home all day, you know, I, I won't see how any of my concepts communicate. You know, I, I, if I do the days I work from home, I, I actually text or email some of my um, writers that I know, uh, just like sketches. So by midday, I'll have maybe any, anywhere from three to uh, eight or nine sketches. And some of them will be like three or four versions fleshed out of one concept. And sometimes it'll just be like four different concepts. And I'll float them around to this sort of my own focus group, a cartoon focus group, if you want to call it that. And a few of my colleagues kind of always joke, they're like, you know, they love when I come over there, and, and they, they think it's the best part of their day. But a few of them have, have said, you never pick the one I want to go with. Why do you keep coming back to me? You're an asshole. Right, 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 right. <laughs> um, and, but I'm like, it's not really cartooning by committee, but, but they often, those people give me the best feedback. Even if I don't go with their favorite idea, they may have some really interesting feedback on you know, how they communicate um, because they're really great writers. So uh, from there, I will make the call on what I want to go with, and I'll just I'll give my editor a copy. I mean, I'm lucky in that, you know, compared to some of these other colleagues that have lost their job, like you mentioned, Diatter, who that was, he's on contract. You know, I think I believe he lost his contract over that Trump cartoon. But like Rob Rogers, who was fired in Pittsburgh when a pro-Trump publisher came in and started saying, you need to show me the, all your ideas and we're going to pick which one we like and start dictating details. That's when things go south. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that I just show my editors, this is what I'm going with. You know, it's not open to editing because they're not cartoonists. Um, and if, in rare occasion, if they say no, and it's, it's usually because of the, the, the sensibility of the image in the context of a, you know, like a daily newspaper, a family newspaper. So once I, once I get that idea approval, I ink the cartoon and scan it in two different ways. One for line art for the newspaper, one that's more like color lines that picks up the color in the, in the paper and the, and the lines where I can add digital watercolor to make it feel more like a hand done illustration. Um, and so I'll finish my deadline by four o'clock for the paper. And then typically if it's a really hot topic, I will go home and color and post it right away before it prints. But if it's not, I'll, after my kids are in bed, I work at night quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So I, my, my day is really kind of fluid. And I'll work on weekends a little bit as well to kind of make it make it happen. How do you determine topics? Uh, you, you could do 
Trump cartoons every single day, but that wouldn't work. Right. So what is your ratio between local, regional, national, international? How do you, how do you strike a balance? You know, that that's been the hardest part of the job since Trump took over. And, uh, it's, it's a little easier now, but especially that first year, it was, it was hard because like you said, not only could I do every cartoon on Trump, I could do instead of 10, five cartoons, I could do 12. And there were weeks where, you know, um, I had 20 sketches and you're just, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You know, I mean, you can't, it's impossible because every, if with only five arrows in your quiver, you know, you're missing you, every, you just have to, I just had to accept the fact that I'm going to just miss out on tons of, of targets and important issues. So I, as a staff cartoonist for Buffalo, I do, I did feel it's very important to maintain a local presence to a degree. And so to me, local means New York State, if it's Andrew Cuomo, if it's Buffalo or Western New York, Niagara Falls, Toronto, it's kind of all local-ish. And uh, at one point I had a publisher, a previous publisher had, had asked me to, to do two local cartoons a week and I have a quota. And I went up to his office and I said, look, I understand what you're doing because they did that for the editorial board and at one point they had like two at least two local editorials and i told him what i do is based off of creativity you know like i pick a top i don't always pick my cartoons based on what i want to comment on but your pick your cartoons pick you yes yeah so it's the inspiration has to be there so if you're putting a quota on two local cartoons a week you're guaranteed to water down the quality of your work at a certain to a certain level and I, I made that case and, and he agreed. So there's never been, it's always been at my discretion. So if there's a bunch of local stuff happening that week, sometimes I'll do one or sometimes two to three at most local. But generally speaking, I be, I'm happy if I get one local out of five in with the, with the way our, our national, you know, state of our national politics right now. And our readers want to see stuff on national issues is the other thing. And my editor in chief also acknowledges that I'm sort of, his, they're only a national columnist. Um, you know, one of the sports editor, writers asked Mike Conway at one point, Jerry Sullivan, our former uh, columnist, he's like, why don't we have a, um, like a national columnist right now? This was like a year ago or, or more when Trump was, you know, it was really going through a bunch of, uh, you know, it was, it was making massive waves. And he said, we do. It's Adam Ziegler. He's our national columnist and he's our local cartoonist. It's like a, a win-win. So it, it depends on the week and month, you know. So each week I kind of deal with that ratio individually. Tell me about the future of your industry. You know, you referenced Michael DeAdder and the cartoon that he published on June 27th. He himself believes it was, quote, simply the final nail in the coffin and hastened my demise, as Amber Healy quotes him. But I'm looking at that particular cartoon, and to your point about the toolbox that you have and the lessons you've learned over the years, I'm looking at that structure based upon how you described how you do that. And as we look from top left to bottom right, it midway through the frame, there's the golf cart, there's Trump, there's the line, do you mind if I play through? And the very last image is that of the father and the, the two or three-year-old daughter who's huddled with him in the weeds, drowned. And that's the final image that's left with us. Um, not the image of Trump. If we, had, if we had, I suppose, mirror flipped it, the last image we'd be left with was Trump looking up and to the right at these people in the weeds. And our right. last thought would be Trump, not the horror of the, this poor husband and uh, father and, and daughter dying. Right. Um, that 
strikes me as the most impactful thing I've seen on that topic in a very long time. And that's what led to him being laid off, being fired, being cut from the roster, as it were, as that final nail in the coffin. Are you not worried about all the nails you've been banging into coffins over the years? It's a massive concern. Um, I think I, I think you're right. I think that cartoon, the power in that image, and I think when it comes to certain topics that um, are emotionally charged, like like um, you know these these um, the issue with the border, when there are, when people are dying, when people are suffering, when there's issues of rape, murder, whenever there's real these really heavy issues, using especially an image that is a referenced a, a true photo of, of of a real tragedy which I've had my own problems in the past with, whether it's a Buffalo plane crash that we've had here or a local uh, string of rapes and murders. Whenever I tackle these issues with, with that, are, that are that powerful, using imagery like that carries um, you know, a lot of acid and, and, and it carries a lot of power. And I think you run into trouble, or he did, when a lot of people out there that People that love editorial cartoons and satire, we know the deal. We know what he's saying, and we know how powerful it can be. When people see an image like that, when they're not used to consuming satire, they take it the absolute wrong way and, and out of context, perhaps, and think it's just inappropriate. You know, everyone's line of taste is different. But cartooning has always held the line at free speech by pushing the boundaries that far, getting away with saying the most you can say about our leader and the we can make Donald Trump naked. We can have him shooting someone on Fifth Avenue. We can completely create all these fictions that speak to a greater truth, that, that, show, that show the true monster that he is with our imagery. Um, we can do that with a, with a visual satire, with visual satire. And when that starts eroding, that's when, you know, the rest of our freedoms are coming into question. And we do, we, I say that. Um, but uh, in America and may, possibly in Canada as well, we don't maybe feel it yet. But if you look around the world, the first journalists, when a, a dictator and a strongman are in office, the first, uh, some of the first people that feel these pains, whether they're um, even shot or killed, or, but typically like arrested, thrown in jail or exiled, their hands are broken, are cartoonists uh, because they, these images transcend language and they the ridicule um, is not tolerated by, by dictators with thin skin. So I think it's just so vitally important, not just for my own job. I feel like it's our democracy is, is going to be more watered down and weaker if we don't have a strong community of visual satirists um, working. And I think in terms of the future of the industry, it's so fractionalized. It's really tough because people want to consume that right now. It's, satire has never been more popular. But if you look back in the day, um, you know, when I learned how to, when I consumed satire, you had Mad Magazine, you know, you had, um, you know, maybe some of the, a few movies like Airplane and Naked Gun and like SNL, and they're just fewer, but more powerful platforms of satire. And now things are so fractionalized with the internet and with social media that there are a billion more ways to produce this kind of thing. And that's where the sort of the, the strength of one of the pillars, like editorial cartooning, is starting to shake, and I mean, you, you combine that with the forces of, you know, corporate censorship, um, being sensitive to their readers, and now with a national, a federal government uh, run by Donald Trump, who um, you know is openly hostile to the First Amendment. So yeah, I'm very concerned. I I think that um, ultimately there, it just we're through we're going through massive changes, 
and there will be, um, it'll look different, you know, styles will be different, but there will be people um, creating satire, uh, visual satire in, in a cartoon or illustration form that's not going to go away. The question is, how can we continue to make money at it and, and, and support it as an industry and raise awareness for it? Adam? Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and insight. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Adam Ziglis is a cartoonist for the Buffalo News and a Pulitzer Prize winner. He joined us from his home in Buffalo. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. All right, so we have these plans for the big live on location show at Black Lab Brewing on the 23rd of February. Um, before, February. Yeah. <laughs> 23rd of August. Before we get that far, are we taking a bit of a summer hiatus? Do you need a break? Um, is this I'm just asking. lovely weather not a break as No, no, it is? it's fine. It's fine. It's just that traditionally we've taken a couple of weeks in August to kind of get our thoughts together and then come back with a bang with some sort of big debut, season debut uh, towards the end of the month. Did you want to take next week off? Well, maybe we should. Do you want to take next week off? Yeah, we should. Okay, take next week off. Okay. Maybe I should do the show. Just ask you questions and then just have dead air. <laughs> All right. It'd be like that time on 680 News when they assigned me to be the summer reporter at the Canadian National Exhibition. I went down to the CNE and interviewed on live radio a mime. And you thought that was funny, right? It was hilarious. How could it? <laughs> so what's your favorite part about the CNE? One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. Really? So have you been to the food building yet? One, 1,000, two, 1,000, <laughs> Are you tired of being inside that glass box? Exactly. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, so fine. We take next week off. Um, but I've got some really big news about the big live show. Okay, go ahead. I want to hear it. Last year, our big live on location show from my back deck show featured the internet's favorite dad. Oh, Brittlestar's coming back? Brittle, no, Brittlestar's not coming back. Oh. That's the big news. Oh. Because it would be ridiculous to have him back as a guest again, correct? Yes. So instead of having him back as a guest again, we've assigned him the role of GoFundMe.com update reporter. Oh, so we're going to have him at the fundraising desk. Right. So he is going to provide updates, <laughs> kind of like one of those Buffalo NEW, what, what was it? WNEW. No, 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 that's PBS. New York. But it's the PBS station. I know what the you PBS mean. The PBS station where they do the, the, the pledge drives. Yeah, and Goldie. You got Goldie. Yeah. Exactly. Goldie sitting in the chair telling you what you could win if you, uh, if you donate. We're going to have, have him do the updates on just how much money we're bringing in <laughs> of the 10,000 we need in the GoFundMe campaign that we've got up and running. Guess how much we've got right now? Uh, we had $75 last week. 125 bucks. Okay, so that's 50 bucks. We're on our way. If you go to geeksandbeats.com slash live, it will take you to the page that will allow you to help support the show that gets us to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas in January of 2020. The 2020 CES is going to be a big deal. That's the one that 100 years from now they'll be quoting because of that those round numbers. Journalists like round numbers. Right. Oh, by the way, it's WNED Buffalo. WNED Buffalo. Yeah. How is it that I could have forgotten that from I my childhood? I have no idea because it's been pounded into your head for decades. You guys were going on and on about Buffalo, and my only true understanding of Buffalo has to do with the fact that um, Buffalo News reports on fires 
everything there's always a house fire in buffalo in tonawanda or Cheektowanda or one of those wandas that needs to be put out mm-hmm. and so i talked to a and of course tom uh commander tom who did the cartoons right. on saturday mornings and irv weinstein who was always the one telling you about the fires he was the news yes. guy but commander tom was the weather guy and it wasn't until I was older that I realized that the weather guy would do the, the six o'clock weather report and then take off his suit and put on a mylar reflective silver suit and stand in front of a screen and introduce cartoons for the kids. Okay, this is a rat hole. Move on. It, is, it <laughs> really is a rat hole, isn't it? Anyway, so we were going to be live on location. We'd really help. Uh, be great if you'd help us out. Get us to CES 2020 because it's going to cost us a metric ass load of money. 125 bucks, I think, will probably get you and me an Uber to Pearson International Airport. Yep, that's about right. So we don't even have the plane tickets yet. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. We're not even at the airport. Yeah, Exactly. We want to say thank you to those who have helped make it possible to get us to the airport, first of all. On our Geeks and Beats page, if you click the support the show link, there is the um, page where you can support us via Patreon and become a patron. And every time we put out an episode, uh, we uh, ding your credit card $1 to work on the big show. That's what makes it the world's worst intern program. And we also have PayPal, if you're a, a fan of that instead. Chef Mike Benninger had texted me the other day to say, you know what, guys, just make it two bucks. No one's going to have a problem with making it two bucks and yeah, she's probably right so maybe for season seven we'll double our prices and see if it makes yeah, a difference two bucks. you know what it's it's you can't get anything for a dollar these days i want to say thank you to aaron poland uh, aaron warner adam stalker adrian bashford Alyssa saying andrew pop anthony full uh, antoinette vanden dickenberg ash chopra those are just the a's oh wait a second hang on i met somebody on my western tour uh who is a donator Oh, and he was one. And I can't remember his name because you were the one that kept butchering it. Schlegelmilch or something. Schlegelmilch? What? Craig Schlegelmilch? I, I, I can't remember. We'll have to go. <laughs> I he he I, is a patron. Well, we yeah. So he came up to me when we. It, well, he was a patron. He was. Well, now we've ruined his name again. But no, he was. He put a two hundred and seven dollar limit, and we charged his credit card up to two hundred and seven dollars as of January, February, March, April, May. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, right. well, check, go back and check Sh- Schlegel or something. Craig Schlegel Milk. Okay. Former patron. All right. Oh, no, I don't want to hit the block user option. Thank you very much for being a longtime fan of the show, Craig. Yes, please. And thank for you. taking time to come up to say hi to Alan. He was very nice. He was very nice, man. Very complimentary about the program. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.